before we get to our show, here is a podcast we think you're going to love. Hey everyone, this is Sarah from Good Nightmare Podcast, a podcast where I like to talk about all things strange and unusual, whether it's mysteries, historical crimes, or fairy tale origins. I hope you'll come along for the ride and join me as we delve into some spooky tales. Happy listening. Hello, Samantha. Hello, Liz. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to you, five listeners. Our awesome, awesome listeners. Thank you so much for listening. This has been like the craziest year ever with this podcast. Would you agree? Yeah. I appreciate everyone being so nice. I'm still like weirded out about it. I wish I could give every one of our listeners a Christmas present. I know. But I guess... This can be their Christmas present. <laughs> this, They're like, we want something else. But a special episode of Perhaps It's You. We've made a special episode for you, folks. It is Christmas-oriented. In a way. Not because <laughs> Christmas is more important than other holidays, but because we could find episodes of Forensic Files <laughs> that at some point mentioned Christmas. In some cases, very briefly. <laughs> very briefly. Is it the case that I just did a Google search, Forensic Files Christmas, and these were the... Th- Four episodes that came up. Yeah. Okay, sure. That's how we, we decided to do these four episodes as a little holiday special. Look, yeah. if you're in like a really good holiday mood right now, if you have your like your cocoa and you're all cozy and maybe you just like got a really great present. Maybe wait to listen to this I'm podcast. Say, yeah, totally wait because this is Forensic Files, so all these cases are a bummer. At one point, I messaged Liz and I was like, why Episodes of Forensic Files are really depressing. Are yours any less depressing? And I was like, no, because it's Forensic Files. Yeah, the fact of the matter is that all Forensic Files are like this. <laughs> They're all horrible crimes, except for we, that one really boring one about a ship in the fog, yeah. which we can all agree is the worst. Yeah, we exhausted our like amusing episodes of Forensic Files for our Halloween special, and now we just have murder and depressing I can think stories. of some other ones that are amusing in some way, but they didn't mention Christmas. So, we were determined to stay on theme. Yes. Maybe that was a horrible idea. If we ever do another Forensic Files special, which people will probably hate this one so much that we never will, but <laughs> I'll, I'll you know, reach into the, the back of my mind and, and think of some more amusing episodes. But these are the ones that very vaguely involved Christmas. So happy holidays, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for listening. And Oh, we appreciate it so much. And we're yeah. having such a good time. And thanks for all your positive feedback. And yeah, I don't know what else, what else to say, but we're genuinely thankful. And we'll, you know, keep going. Yep. That's that's the real present. <laughs> that you more, get more perhaps it's you. More perhaps it's you in 2018. Yes. Should we get into these? We got four to talk about. We got about. four. So tell me about the sands of crime. Oh, if you would like to watch this, it is on Netflix. Yes. It is in collection one. This is episode 18. And does it have anything to do with sand? A tiny bit. Kind of. We'll get to it. Sands of crime. Yes. 21-year-old Julie Buskin was pursuing a bachelor's degree in dance from the University of Oklahoma. It had been her lifelong dream to become a ballet dancer. 
According to her parents, Julie's goal was to teach special education and open a dance studio. So she was a great person. Julie completed the coursework for her degree by Christmas, so her parents drove from Arkansas to help her move home. Christmas. That will be the only mention of Christmas in this entire episode. (laughs) Miss. She was such a good student. She was all done for the year by Christmas. And I think she was done with her degree by Christmas, actually. Yeah. She was about to graduate. And then her parents came to get her and all her crap, and it's sad. Yeah, when they got to her apartment, however, both Julie and her car were missing. Upon arrival, a police officer approached them, asking if they were the Buskins. When they said yes, the officer instructed them to contact the university police because their daughter was missing. Which is horrible. To have someone just show up and be like, yeah, your daughter's missing. You need to call some people. Call the UP, which are probably useless. Lovely. (laughs) What a wonderful Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Julie had taken her friend to the airport around 4 o'clock that morning and told her friend that she was going back to her apartment. Around 5.30 a.m., one of the other tenants in Julie's building called 911 to report an awful scream that they had heard coming from the parking lot. They play the 911 call. And this guy was like, we heard a horrible scream. We're kind of afraid to go out there, but send someone right away. It sounded like it was... Yeah, the 911 operator was like, "Have would you go outside? They're and he like, was no. like, no, I'm scared to do that. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was an odd request. Yes, it was. One other neighbor heard a male voice say, shut up, get in the car. And several neighbors heard a woman scream. The investigators tell the show that they have no way to prove that the scream had come from Julie Buskins, but that they believe that it did. Um, Twelve hours after she disappeared, Julie's body was found on the bank of a lake about 15 miles away. Her hands had been tied with a pair of shoelaces, and she had been shot execution style. There were signs of sexual assault. It's just awful. I know. The show interviewed her parents, which will basically shatter your heart. Julie's mother says... That you feel helpless, there's nothing you can do, and nothing's going to help, which is true, I'm sure. Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) What a wonderful Christmas special we have created for you. They like true crime, I'm assuming. (laughs) Uh, So now we start the investigation. Julie had many friends at school. Her mother said that she didn't have time for a relationship, but that she had many male acquaintances. She didn't have any bad breakup in her past or any issues with men that would lead the investigators one way or another. So rare, really. Indeed. It sounded like she was really focused focused on her schoolwork, on her dance. She had goals, and she didn't have time for no man. Which, good for her. I respect Julie. Um, Her apartment was in perfect order. There was no signs of a struggle, and her car was found parked at a different apartment complex just a few blocks away. There was red sand on the floor of the car that resembled the sand on the beach where her body had been discovered. Would you call that the sands of crime? I guess. No. It ended up not being evidence whatsoever. That's dumb, and I we don't understand why this episode is called that. It was collection one. Like it was, this is early days for forensic files. They didn't know that they're they still working to, on their pun game. They didn't know that they'd have to come up with. I think there's like 400 episodes of forensic <laughs> files. 400 puns, you guys. That's a lot. It's a lot of puns. They had no idea what they were in for. No. So a reporter very smartly asks why the killer returned the car basically to the scene of the abduction, which I just wrote. Good question. Um, There was no blood in the car, though, no foreign hairs or fibers, and no fingerprints. Julie's cell phone records revealed that someone had used her phone after her death. There was a call 
to a weather forecast service and a call to a number that wasn't in service anymore. There were also two sets of footprints in the sand by Julie's body. One clearly belonged to her and then there was a single set that led away from the crime scene. It was a size 9 Nike running shoe. And Nike actually identified the specific shoe for them, which I said was pretty cool. A crumpled pink leotard with Julia's initials was found near her body. It had semen on it, and DNA was recovered. I'm so. just making a really sad face. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Using ballistics, they were able to identify unusual marks on the bullet that killed Julie. This helped them narrow it down to just three companies that made 22 caliber guns um, capable of creating the specific pattern on the bullet. Unfortunately, even with all this evidence, investigators didn't get anywhere for nearly a month. But after seeing a picture of Julie's car on the news, a man called the police to report that he may have seen her killer. On the morning of her murder... A car matching Julie's pulled out in front of him, nearly hitting him. This happened right by the lake where Julie was killed. He got road rage and followed the car for five miles. He noticed that the man in the car was acting strangely, and he kept looking in his rearview mirror. Well, also, not to say this wasn't the killer, but you are, like, following him because you're raged out. Yeah. So that could also be a reason why it He's like, he kept looking in the rear view mirror. And I was like, yeah, you're like following him aggressively. <laughs> I would be looking at you too. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this could have been the killer or it could have just been someone skeeved out. Mm-hmm. So then they bring in this dumb this, forensic artist named this Harvey. This so suspect to me. <laughs> who showed this guy examples of each facial feature. This forensic artist didn't seem like he understands how memory works. He says that this guy didn't even know he was a witness to something until you tweak his memory. He is what I call a disassociated witness, which is a term this man himself made up. I I wrote this disassociated witness thing seems very suspect. That's not how memory works. You can't reach back into your memory and suddenly recall something. Like, that's why I find hypnosis to be bullshit, because it's not how your memory works. Also, it was nighttime. This guy saw him in the rearview mirror, and they come up with this detailed sketch. He doesn't even see his whole face because of the way the mirror would cut it off. Imagine yourself driving on a dark road, because there was no lights on this road, following behind someone. You, I, I'm surprised he could even see this man's face. Eyewitness testimony is so unreliable, unfortunately, already, when people have, like, a good look. Yeah. Because... We just don't have this great memory for faces like we think we do. Especially when you barely see the face. Well, yeah. Also, (laughs) when you're, like, looking in a mirror at night. He was road raging, first of all. He followed the car for five miles. It was nighttime or a very early morning. They acted like that wasn't insane. It's insane to follow a car for five miles because it cut you off or whatever. It's, It's a little insane, yes. Um, but anyway, Forensic Files says that the perp was possibly a college student and possibly Hispanic. So, there you go. Okay. That's not evidence at all. Uh, no. <laughs> not surprisingly, no one recognized this sketch and the case went cold. Aww. Then, four and a half years after the murder, police received a letter from a female inmate at a local jail who said that her old acquaintance, Dennis Sturm- Sturmer, might have murdered Julie. Dennis was a 23-year-old construction worker with no criminal record who lived just four blocks from Julie at the time. And he kind of resembled the sketch. I don't know. The sketch was so generic. 
it was hard to say. I don't trust that Forensic sketch Forensic Files at all. made it sound like he looked exactly like the sketch, but yeah, I don't trust the sketch either, so. It was basically like, this sketch had a big chin, and this guy has a big chin. Their it, noses were vaguely similar, but I mean, I find the sketch to be so suspect that it means nothing to I me. I guess both of them were male. Right. That's so, true. Good point. So there you go. Dennis refused to answer any questions and refused to give a DNA sample, sample which is what I always recommend. Yeah. Don't talk to the police. Honestly, don't. Never talk to the police. You're not required. (laughs) That's how they get false confessions out of you. Anyway. so Legal advice from perhaps it's you. I've seen somewhere on the internet a nice embroidery hoop that says, come back with a warrant (laughs) that I would really like to put by my front door. (laughs) And then I can just. You know, point, point to it. it when the when the fuzz shows up. Yeah. Which they've showed up before, right? In the <laughs> middle of the night wanting <laughs> to come search your house. That's true, yes. The police once came. It was really like midnight, and they just pounded on the door. Obviously, I did not answer it. My husband went and answered it. I would have just been like, fuck that, no. <laughs> I probably would have called the police on the police. <laughs> and they said that they had a tip that someone was in our home. They Well, they asked for a, sp- a specific person's name, and then we were like, no, we're not that person. And they were like, well, we got a tip that they're there. And we were sort of like, okay, well, they're not. And they clearly wanted to come in, but no. Yeah. So then they just waited in their patrol car across the street for a couple hours. If you had had that embroidery, you could have just yeah. been like, Yeah, and I told sorry. that story to someone, and they were like, well, why didn't you let them come in to like make sure he wasn't hiding in your house? That's how my husband gets arrested. I was like, no. yeah, no fucking way. Not going to happen. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> also, I don't, I, they, got a, they got a tip? I was like, yeah, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> but anyway, point. there's my, my recent brush with the law. <laughs> so police got a court order to collect d- his DNA. The profile was very close to the DNA they got off the leotard and Julie's underwear, but close is not enough, so they excluded him from the case. They acted like mad that close was not enough. It's like that yeah, it, that means it's not him. <laughs> you can't just arrest someone for being close. What? Yeah. I wanted to slap that guy. Yeah, I know. The chemist said that the DNA was so close that it could possibly have been a relative of Dennis who perpetrated the crime, but Dennis's brother's didn't, DNA didn't match either. Spoiler, it's not a relative of his either. No, it's, it has nothing to do with this Dennis no, guy, they actually. No, just, they just wanted to be done with the case, so they were like, can we arrest him anyway? Because he kind of looks like our s- sketchy sketch. And he's kind of similar to the DNA that we have? No. Mm-hmm. Again, no, not evidence, no. Then they did a DNA dragnet. Um, everyone who was asked to contribute DNA complied. 200 people ended up giving their DNA. It was the largest DNA dragnet in history. Well, that's crazy. That does make this case kind of interesting. That's a huge that's amount. A lot of people. I'm assuming everyone in her apartment complex, probably a bunch of students at the college. Yeah. But no one matched out of all 200 people. Then a few years later, a man named Anthony Sanchez was arrested for raping his girlfriend. His DNA was taken per the sex offender laws at the time. Investigators noticed that he had also lived a mile away from Julie's apartment when she was murdered. Somehow they get his ex-girlfriend's journal in which she had written that Anthony got her and himself matching Nike sneakers. This was a very detail. It was like a planner, but she like wrote down what happened each day. Yeah. And she wrote, he, he got, got me us. sneakers and him the same pair, but boys. 
it's very strange that, that this is the evidence they collected was his ex-girlfriend's journal? Yeah, they, they didn't explain how they came upon that. It's very, very odd. Um, but, of course, the sneakers he got were the same ones, I think, that the he same pair a, of Nike shoes that matched the prints, and he was also a size 9. But how many Nike sneakers are there? It seems like a lot. Yes, that is true. It seems like unless you could identify a specific wear wear pattern or anomaly in the shoe that i'm not saying that's not circumstantial evidence it's just not very compelling i don't think not no i don't think it's also they didn't find the shoes like in his possession they just know he at one point owned that type of shoe yeah i didn't say that they actually had the shoe so and i mean if they had the shoe and it had red sand in it that would make sense but they never mentioned the shoe again so i have no idea also then it would explain why this is called sands of crime (laughs) it would but unfortunately they never mentioned sand again (laughs) unfortunately (laughs) where's the mention of sand where is where do we come full circle with the pun Okay, so the number that was dialed on Julie's phone was one digit off from someone Sanchez knew at the time. So they speculated that he tried to dial the number from memory and just missed one digit. Also, it's kind of compelling, sort of. I mean, the evidence is adding up, I guess. The circumstantial yeah. evidence painting a bigger picture. I don't think any of these things are that compelling by themselves. But then one of Sanchez's girlfriends said that him and his father like to fire twenty two caliber guns at the wall of their duplex. Who doesn't? Yeah, my new favorite reporter says it's kind of an odd father and son bonding activity. <laughs> so, uh, yes, it is. I mean, yeah, everybody likes to do that, Samantha. Yeah, so they got a warrant, but after x-raying and then ripping the walls apart, they found no bullets. They totally trashed this place. Uh-huh. Fortunately, the landlord went in after them to clean up and vacuumed up a bullet with his shop vac. Yeah, after they completely trashed this duplex and didn't find anything, the poor landlord who has to go clean everything up. This is the only time I'm going to be sympathetic to a landlord. Um, He's like, uh, I found a bullet, guys. He actually found the evidence they were looking for, but didn't notice. And not surprisingly, the marks on the bullet match the ballistic marks on the one that killed Julie. And then the DNA matched Sanchez. So much, much better evidence. He was convicted. Prosecutors said that he was stealing Christmas gifts from parked cars when he saw Julie and decided to kidnap, rape, and kill her. See? Christmas. He was stealing Christmas presents from cars. Was he, though, or was that just the... I don't know how they know the stealing Christmas presents thing. Maybe he admitted to it, I guess. They never mentioned how they knew that. He was sentenced to death. I did Google this case, and Anthony's lawyer appealed his conviction all the way to the Supreme Court, and in 2016, the Supreme Court ruled against him and his conviction stood. He's still awaiting execution, um, but as you probably know, Oklahoma has been having some issues obtaining drugs that will kill people without subjecting them to an excruciating death. Just think of... What a nightmare world we live in. Following the botched execution of Clayton Lockett in 2014, and then another execution in 2015 in which they used the wrong drug to kill Charles (laughs) Warner, (laughs) the Attorney General of Oklahoma put a moratorium on executions, which is still in place. So Sanchez is on death row, but no, I mean, there's no sign that they're going to lift the moratorium. Yeah. His brother runs a Facebook group dedicated to his innocence. You can check it out if you're interested. I didn't. I did look at it. Oh, did you? It's 
if you're in the mood for a depressing time, more so than listening to those specials. Is it just like a family that's in total denial? Yes. Look at The Innocence of My Brother, Anthony Sanchez, which is just a guy constantly saying, Anthony, I miss you. My brother is innocent. And then people saying, uh, I saw that forensic files. Your brother's totally fucking guilty. I hope he dies slowly while you watch. Oh, God. The internet is the worst. (laughs) Which, he's not really presenting any reason why he thinks his brother is innocent beyond that he loves his brother and that you shouldn't believe everything you see on TV, which is fair, but... The DNA, DNA evidence. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what else to say except the DNA match. And there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. And his brother had a history of sexual violence. So and he probably is guilty. I don't believe in the death penalty. No. I hope Oklahoma never reinstates it. But I also believe that he's guilty and should rot for the rest of his life. He's, if he is guilty of this crime, which it seems like it is, it's a horrible, senseless, it's just horrific. This is an absolute worst nightmare crime. Yeah. Um, I can understand why it evokes passion in people and they would want him dead or would say... But don't I, say that to his family. No, That's just cruel. It, the family is not guilty, no. even if he is. And obviously, I think there is some denial going on and they still, it's still his brother, even I if know. he's the worst person in the whole world. Yeah. So... Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> That's to one out of you. four. And it only gets worse for me. It sort of really does. <laughs> All right, you got the next so one. So let's go to Dollars and Cents. If you would like to watch this on Netflix, it is in Collection 7. This is episode 21. Just after midnight on what Eve? That's right, Christmas Eve. <laughs> it's our theme. Motorists along Route 83 near Baltimore reported a brush fire. Was it brush that was on fire? No, it was a human. (laughs) A volunteer firefighter was the first on the scene, which is helpful. And he discovered, oh, this is actually a burning body. After the fire was put out, the body was so badly burned, it could not be identified. Again, Merry Christmas. (laughs) We're just going to keep saying this. (laughs) Last night, Samantha and I watched the movie Gremlins, and just periodically throughout the movie, I kept going, this is a movie for children. <laughs> because I guess maybe that's debatable. Maybe it's for like a little bit older children or maybe it's like you're supposed Yay. to watch it as a family. But there are some like really dark moments in like that a lot? kind of Christmassy movie, like a part where a gremlin's head is just like burning in a fireplace. So I... I yeah, it was not really what I would... <laughs> put a child in front of to watch but i love that movie but um i feel sort of the same way about this here we are doing this christmas special but now it's about murders okay so after the fire was put out they couldn't identify the body he had no wallet or id an accelerant had been clearly used it burned very hot so there wasn't a ton left to work with They found both a can of accelerant and a lighter. There was also a melted tarp under the body. Oh, and they thought that this had to be a two-person job based on moving the body, like, down this embankment by a highway in the snow. They were like... Couldn't it just, like, sled down the hill? Like, Yeah, I don't know. If it was on a tarp, you could easily drag a body down a hill of snow. Yeah. I don't get that. They... We're convinced they were looking for two people. I mean, were there two pairs of tracks in the snow? They didn't say that. Mm. So, whatever. Anyway. <laughs> we're not the police. We're not the police. What do we know? What do we know? 
The medical examiner found three bullet wounds in the head, but no smoke in the victim's lungs. So they were dead before they were lit on fire, which is a very small mercy. Um, The hands and feet were bound with duct tape. The skull of the victim was used to create a sketch because the teeth were gone from the gunshot wounds, so they couldn't rely on dental records to make an ID. Ooh, I just clenched my jaw. Yeah, that's it's. it's I mean, this is, this is a brutal crime. So they they worked with the skull to create the sketch, and also some of his hair remained on one side, so that let them know that he had a sort of cornrow hairstyle, which helped a lot with this sketch. Um, so that was released to the media, and three days later, a woman said to that this resembled her boyfriend Wesley Person, who was missing. She also said that he had an earring, and they were like, "Oh, we purposely left that out of the sketch." Oh, smart. So we would know if we were getting a legitimate tip. Okay. The police were familiar with Wesley because six years ago, six years previously, he had been tried for drug trafficking. And what remained of the victim's fingerprints from the fire did match Wesley's fingerprints that were on file. Wesley's cousin, who just seemed like this super nice stand-up dude, anyway was one of the last people to see him. The two went, what kind of shopping together? That's right. Christmas, Christmas shopping. shopping together. We need like Christmas music to just <laughs> chime in every time we mention Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And he mentioned that Wesley was carrying a surprising amount of cash on him while they were shopping, particularly considering Wesley was unemployed. And that when he left Wesley, he went off with two friends that he did not recognize and that the scene seemed kind of tense, but he couldn't actually hear what they were talking about. Like, they parted ways in the parking garage. Wesley went off with his friends. His cousin got into his car and sort of looked over and was like, that doesn't look super friendly. Hmm. I don't know who those people are, and I don't know what they're talking about, but it just seems a little weird, but whatever. And he got in his car and drove away, and then no one saw Wesley again. However, when they talked to Wesley's family, the two people described seemed to be descriptions of his friends, Justin Glover and Lawrence Morrell. Both had had minor brushes with the law, but had not served time and had no violent offenses. They said they dropped Wesley off at his house, and when they went to his house, which had they not done that yet? I don't know. Anyway, the shopping bags from his purchases for shopping were there. So that seemed to confirm that, like, yes, he had made it home. He had dropped off his stuff that he bought, at least. And there was no trace of blood in the house, and there was no blood found in the car that picked him up. At this point, the medical examiner finds construction debris inside of the melted tarp that was... His body had been wrapped in a tarp and lit on fire, and it had melted. And sort of when they go through that melted plastic blob, (laughs) they find some construction debris like trapped inside so it's the it's like a tarp that was used at a construction site and that included chunks of painted drywall that had layers of different colored paint from like over the years wow and also weird old plaster that had these threads in it and when they examined it it turned out to be animal hairs Ooh, which, from Snowball? From Snowball the cat. Snowball strikes again? No. Apparently, up until the 40s, it was pretty common to put animal hair in your plaster because it made it stronger. And what kind of animal hair? Just like, it just seemed Any? like, oh, you know how you just have animal hair around? <laughs> Mix that in your plaster. I mean, I do since I have two dogs, but. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, 
It was probably just like leftover from tanneries or something. Yes, I suppose. So that was like a common construction technique until the 40s. And I don't know, I guess they invented better plaster. (laughs) It turned out that Wesley and his friends were being investigated for for bank fraud. And their scheme was they would get a young woman to go apply for a car loan. But then she wouldn't buy a car. So well, all yeah. of all of them would split the money. And then when the bank came to repossess the car, there wasn't a car to repossess. <laughs> and they had already spent all the money. So there was not much the bank could do. So that was their scheme okay. that they were all in on. And they had, through this, gotten $120,000. It turns out that his friend Lawrence, who was one of the people that he was seen going away with, was also a house flipper. Did he have an HGTV show? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Flip or get murdered. Uh, <laughs> which finally is the title of this episode. <laughs> Flip or get murdered. Finally, the true crime crowd and the home improvement HGTV crowd come together where if you do not successfully flip a home, <laughs> you're done for. You get murdered. You oh get murdered. The time of the murder, Lawrence had three vacant properties that he was working on, and one of them had been built in the 30s, which would match up with the plaster. They went to the property, and they didn't see any blood or anything, and they sort of desperately just, like, swept up the debris that was in the basement, and were like, okay, we'll analyze this then. (laughs) And the paint chip was a match to what had been found with the body that had the same, like, colored layers of paint over the years. And the same animal hairs were found in the plaster. And they also found one tiny little blood speck on a piece of ductwork. Just, like, one single drop of blood. And then the cop was saying, look, Justin Glover is an idiot. Which is not a direct quote. <laughs> <laughs> Lawrence Morrell is the smart one here. So they would. So That's how like, a murderous duo is always, right? There's a yeah, smart one and a, a dumb one. And I was like, so that makes him the killer? Because he's like, look, we're talking about two guys who were friends. One of them's a goddamn idiot. <laughs> this crime's too good. It wasn't him. We got to look at the house flipper guy, <laughs> the hit show, Flipper Get Murdered. I mean, that is a red flag right there. So He seems to host a TV show called Flipper Get Murdered. <laughs> I think we should look into him. We should look into him. Uh, that's suspicious. <laughs> so anyway, they traced the two of them using their cell phones, which ruined their alibis. It proved that they were not where they said they were. And that also they were together by the dump site, and they both checked their voicemail at 4.30 a.m., at the same time. At the same time. And they had a hilarious reenactment of two guys on the phone, on the street, like, leaning on different things. To show you, they checked their voicemail at the same time. The lamest evidence I guess, ever. Yeah. They, they act like this was very dramatic. Okay, so their alibis, they said that they were with their girlfriends. Oh, they weren't. They were with each other. They were by the dump site. So they're arrested and charged with murder. I feel like this is very circumstantial evidence, honestly. What? Yeah, that, did they get DNA off that blood drop? Did they? Okay, so yes, that was Wesley Person's blood. But it is one drop, drop of blood. And he was their friend, and it was in a construction site. So, yeah. Is, I mean, it seems like the defense could come up with a counterpoint to that. Like, he maybe cut himself while he was helping flip this house? I'm not saying there isn't evidence. It's just 
Is it beyond a reasonable doubt evidence? I don't know. Or are these two black guys that the police already didn't like? Well. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, they speculated, I don't think they have any proof of this, that Wesley had done a scam without cutting them in, and they were mad. Because he had all that cash? Yeah. It seemed like they all had a lot of cash. Right. They made that much money. I don't think there's any evidence of that, but that was like why, that was their idea of a motive of why they would have decided to kill their friend was that he didn't cut them in on one of these scams. But I don't think there's any evidence of them doing another scam or I mean, that if there happening. had been, that would have been presented. Right. Also, for this to work, so the houses that he's renovating are in Pennsylvania. They're in Baltimore. So we're talking about that they, like, abduct him, take him 65 miles to this house that's being renovated, murder him in the basement, and then wrap his body in the construction tarp and drive it back to Baltimore and light it on fire? Yeah, that's a good point. That's very strange. I'm not saying it didn't happen, because it does seem like he was was in that house. Did and they present the timeline? Because he was seen with these two right. on Christmas Eve, and then when was the body found? Like, did they have time to drive that distance? They didn't really talk about that. I would be curious to know that because it does seem like his I guess, yeah, body been, was in that house, and Lawrence Morrell is the person that owned that house to flip it. But it's probably them. But it's not the most compelling evidence. Yeah, it doesn't really sound like it. It's I would say it's a strong circumstantial case. Yeah, as the the expert that I am from watching television. <laughs> I mean, he was seen with them. They were the last people to be seen with him. Yeah, they owned the property that it seems like he died in. There was construction material in the tarp. I mean, it's strong circumstantial evidence. But they don't find the murder weapon. They don't find any of his blood in, like, their vehicle or on them. Mm -hmm. We're talking about one drop of blood in his a property his friend owned. Who was doing construction in it. Yeah, yeah. you're right. It's not It's not super it's compelling. It's not super compelling. But I would say the suspects are connected. This is what I wrote down. Suspects are connected to the murder scene, but not the murder itself. There's nothing to connect them to burning the body, for example. Yeah, interesting. But they were both convicted to first degree murder and sentenced to life. And then I also wrote down, where's the gun? Because that's never found. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. Well, if anybody else has some thoughts on this episode, this dollars and cents episode, and whether or not, how compelling do you find this evidence? I would be interested to know. I'd be interested to hear some feedback, too. Because... They're still in prison, I presume? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, interesting. That's that's that one. Ready for a missing child? <laughs> like every Christmas special, this includes a missing child. I... I should have realized this is called Innocence Lost. Yeah. And I should have immediately just gone, no, let's just do three. <laughs> because there's. I've watched this episode before. Who I immediately this knew. in their Christmas special. I'm so sorry. I know, this one's bad. Did you write down what collection this one's from? Because I didn't. Yes, this is collection eight, episode 13. Innocence you probably lost. shouldn't watch it. I would not recommend it. Unless you're- I've watched it twice now because I've seen this one before. And I was like, Ugh, this is the one we're doing. I'm sorry. That's all right. Okay, so Tammy Brennan and her five-year-old daughter, Melissa, had moved from Texas to Virginia. Tammy was a newly single mother, recently divorced, and she worked as an accountant. Friends described Tammy as a good mother who mostly kept to herself- 
The apartment where her and Melissa lived frequently hosted social events in their community space. They particularly did a lot of special gatherings around the holidays. Tammy's friend says that the night of December 3rd... Her friend seemed a little judgy, by the way. Her friend was really judgy. I was not a fan of the friend. I'm no. sorry. She said on December 3rd, 1989, they hosted a Christmas party. The residents were all looking forward to it. Tammy and her mother attended the Christmas party along with about 200 residents of the complex. When it was time to leave, Tammy asked Melissa to get their coats... Shortly after handing the coat to her mother, Melissa disappeared. Tammy searched the clubhouse for her daughter, but she was nowhere to be found. In a utility room near the lobby, a full-length window was wide open. The window faced a wooded area and was away from where the party was held. Yeah, This is the worst nightmare. It really is. The police searched the area and questioned everyone at the party. It was very cold. Which so 200 they, people were at this Christmas party. It was a very successful apartment complex Christmas party. It must have been humongous. Yeah. Yeah. And for, to have 200 people attend? This seems like the sort of thing that your apartment complex would like throw and like try to get people to go and everybody would be like, yeah, whatever. I don't want to go. But no, 200 people went. I know. And it seemed like a lot of kids were there and it was a really fun time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> So the authorities were worried about Melissa because it was freezing cold that night. And if she was out, you know, if she had snuck out or something, she might freeze. But I don't know. It seems obvious that that's not what happened. Although no one at the party saw anything unusual, police feared that Melissa had been abducted. Tammy went on TV to plead with her daughter's abductor to bring her home. But police could find no trace of Melissa, even though hundreds of people came out to search Um, People from the local military bases came out. There were helicopters and airplanes. The community support was really, really strong. Everyone put yellow ribbons up. Yeah. Hoping that she would be found safe. Here's a depressing question that I had while watching this. So we've talked a little bit about when kids run away, police departments saying, oh, they just ran away Mm -hmm. and not really caring. Is there like an age limit? Is there a point where you age out of being worth looking for? Like, everybody was very concerned to find this little girl. Good. I'm glad. She was five. Yeah. But if she had been 14, would they have looked for her? I don't know. That is a depressing thing to think about. It's like, oh, well, they're 10. Oh, but they're 11. (laughs) Mm, They just ran away. Yeah, you want to hope that... This strong response would happen for every missing child. But, yeah, you have to think that if they had been older, if they had been kind of a bad kid, right? If they had oh. got if they got Fs in school and kind of ran I with the wrong crowd. It. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it Would everyone so come out to try and find them? Let's look for everybody, please. I know. We should find every lost kid. Every lost person. Yeah. No one's leaving to start a new life. Ugh. You can't even do that anymore. <laughs> Police questioned Melissa's father, but he was in Texas the night she disappeared and was cleared as a suspect. They also questioned everyone who lived in the apartment complex and the entire staff. A man named Caleb Hughes worked at the complex as a maintenance man and attended the Christmas party that night. Police interviewed Hughes in his home a few hours after the party, which was around 2 a.m. And he he was wearing a creepy bathrobe, you guys, according to the reenactment. The creepiest. Hughes told the police that after the party, he stopped to pick up a six-pack before driving straight home, but it would have been impossible for him to purchase beer at that time because uh, they stopped selling alcohol at midnight in Virginia. So apparently when he left the party and when he arrived at home, there wouldn't have been time for him to stop and buy alcohol. So that's a bad lie. Yes. 
Hughes let police search his house, and they discovered that he was in the middle of washing the clothes he had worn to the party, including his sneakers, his belt, and his knife holder. At 2 a.m. Quite suspicious. Probably, I mean, I'm glad that he did, but he probably shouldn't have let the police in. Probably not, yeah. Don't talk to the police and don't let them in without a warrant. Yeah. Although I guess I'm glad he did. Yeah, I'm glad. Also strange was that the side of Hughes' sneakers had been shaved off and tests revealed traces of human protein, which possibly could have been blood. Hughes also told police that he hadn't spoken to Melissa at the Christmas party, but several witnesses contradicted him. Lies. All lies. Yeah, he's not doing a great job of lying. No. Forensic scientists examined Hughes's car, which was filthy. The car was sprayed <laughs> with luminol, which revealed blood on the steering wheel, pedals, and floor mat. Unfortunately, no DNA could be recovered. I wrote down, dirty cars prevent evidence from being found, which means try convicting me of anything. <laughs> My car is filthy. <laughs> Scientists also find a random fiber in that garbage heap. <laughs> Good luck. Well, scientists combed the car for fibers and hair and discovered quite a bit of dog hair, but also three rabbit hairs that had been dyed black. Mm. Forensic Files tells us that the rabbit hairs were microscopically similar to German rabbit hair coat that Tammy had worn to the Christmas party. Not evidence, really. No, we really need your friend to come talk about this fiber evidence that we're about to get into. They also discovered blue and red fibers. The blue fibers were very rare. They recovered 50 fibers, all the same shape and length, which indicated that they were made. I mean, they were synthetic fibers, so they indicated that it was made from the same company or whatever. Gas chromatography sure. yep. revealed that the blue fibers were dyed with the same blue dye, but the chemical composition of the dye was unusual. Melissa had been wearing a blue sweater and a red plaid skirt the night she disappeared, so this was obviously of interest to the investigators. The outfit had been a gift from Melissa's grandmother, but she couldn't remember where she purchased it. However, she did remember that there was a picture of Big Bird on the front. And Forensic Files very amusingly talks about Big Bird. Like, we don't know what Sesame Street is. <laughs> They're like, the television show Sesame Street has a character in it called Big Bird. And it's like, who doesn't know that? Yeah, I... I... You also show a picture of it. It's not necessary to explain this, but whatever. Hey, a it's a time. minor gripe, I guess. <laughs> a little time to kill. <laughs> or they're just huge Big Bird fans. Yes. Over so, at Forensic Files. <laughs> I hope yeah, that's it. Be. The three rabbit hairs were not enough to charge Caleb, so they had to track no, down absolutely not. the source of the blue fibers. Yeah, because they said that he could have brushed against Mil- or yeah, brushed against Tammy on his way out. Transfer that doesn't prove anything. There's no way to prove that, but they had 50 of the blue fibers, so they needed to track those down. However, they really didn't get anywhere with it until one night. The lead investigator was complaining to his wife about how frustrated he was with these missing fibers, and she declared that Sesame Street is sold at JCPenney, and then went and produced a catalog. Sure enough, there was the outfit they were looking for. I like that it was, like, not even that year's catalog. Like, she had some back year's Christmas catalog from JCPenney. And then Samantha and I were like, this is how we're going to solve a crime. I, I literally told Liz that if I ever help solve a murder, it's going to be because I know some obscure thing that's sold at TJ Maxx or yeah. whatever. <laughs> You're going to go, this was a limited edition gift with purchase at Sephora two years ago. They only made so many of them, blah, 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 blah. The killer must be. Yes. Exactly. So I, 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 I want to say keep your catalogs because you might solve a murder, but I don't think anyone really gets catalogs I mean, anymore. We have the internet now. So the FBI asked. It's not the same. 
is not the same. The FBI contacted JCPenney and asked for the outfit, but they were sold out. JCPenney, however, located a customer who had purchased one of the outfits the year before. It had been the wrong size for his daughter, so it had never been worn. And he I like sent that. it to the FBI. What a weird phone call that was. Yeah, JCPenney. Hey, this is JCPenney. So you ordered a Big Bird sweater? <laughs> Do you still have that? I was also wondering how they knew that he, like, was he getting ready to return it? Like, he must have called JCPenney previously and asked about returning it. He probably asked to return it, and they were like, go fuck yourself. And then a few years later, they were like, so, hey. You still have that Big Bird sweater? What happened to that sweater? And for some reason, he still had it? Because we're trying to solve a crime. (laughs) I, I wish I could hear that phone call. I know. So the FBI then made a startling discovery. Apparently, pennies, as they call it, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> my, my grandma calls JC Penny. <laughs> had wanted to make the, this outfit very special and created their own blue dye instead of using one of the thousands of other blues they had available to them. JC Penny patented the dye and used it only once to create 7,000 Big Bird sweaters. How weird is that? Why? I have no idea. This was Plum Navy 887, by the way, <laughs> which they have the patent on and never used for anything else. It was a nice blue, but I mean, I don't know. Very it's strange. so weird. So, of course, the fibers matched. The thing I wanted to mention, at least from my not professional opinion whatsoever, fiber analysis seems skeptical usually, but this seems like something more. Like, they're comparing a unique dye that was only used once and using this... This is like as good as fiber evidence could possibly be, it seems right. like, because it's so unusual. So, yes, we usually bitch about how inaccurate fiber analysis is now that, you this know, it's known to be junk science. Pretty good. But this seems like a little bit Considering. more. This seems like it could actually hold up to scientific scrutiny. So props to the FBI. They continued to search for Melissa's body. Caleb failed a lie detector test. And the polygraph. Which means nothing. Yeah, the polygraph administrator, though, had a great mustache. Oh, yeah, true. In Virginia, the prosecution has to be able to prove where a homicide occurred, but the blood could not be matched to Melissa, so they could only prove that she had been in the car, and they only basically had enough evidence to prosecute for kidnapping, which carried just a 10-year sentence. Which is bullshit. It is kind of bullshit, actually. Like, if you if you kidnap someone and you get that person back... Maybe I understand having this minimum sentence. If you kidnap someone and they are gone forever, you have a maximum 10-year sentence? Ugh. So then the investigators decided something that might be a bit of a stretch. (laughs) You can decide. (laughs) That's up to you, dear listeners. Because Melissa had been last seen wearing a puffy pink winter coat over the blue Big Bird sweater... They said that the coat had to have been removed by Caleb and that this indicates that he had sexually assaulted Melissa. Yeah. I mean, he probably did, but that's total speculation. Yeah. They speculated that because she was wearing a coat, like if the coat had still been on, it would have captured all these fibers. But since there were 50 fibers in the car, she wasn't wearing the coat, which maybe is true, but I that, that really seems shaky. Does that shaky. Prove- Sexual molestation, though? I don't think it does. Coat removal? I don't think it does. I mean, this person seems like garbage, and I don't really want to defend them, but we we need a justice system that fucking works. (laughs) That's the problem, because if they're going to use sketchy evidence to convict a monster, they could use sketchy evidence to convict someone who's innocent. So it's really, it's hard because you want this guy to be put away, 
Absolutely, but, but you can't. This is also a system, you know, as a whole. So we can't. So frustrating. Like, everyone has to be held to the same standards. I don't know. This is crazy to me. Anyway, Melissa's body was never found. Caleb Hughes was charged with kidnapping with the intent to defile and was found guilty and sentenced to 50 years without the possibility of parole. I guess with intent to defile is probably true. He wasn't holding her ransom. It wasn't kidnapping for money. Yeah, so here's the thing. I googled the case, and in 1993, the Virginia Court of Appeals reversed Caleb's conviction and sent the case back to Fairfax County for a new trial. In their opinion, the three-judge panel found that the evidence presented during the first trial proved that Hughes abducted Melissa, but did not prove an intent to sexually assault her. I think that's probably true. But then the state appealed that decision, and it, it was reversed. Oh, In the opinion of the new judges, they stated that a five-year-old girl is taken by a male stranger. No effort is made for ransom or theft. Robbery, parental abduction, or personal animosity are excluded as motives. The only natural and reasonable explanation that flows from the evidence is that the abduction was for sexual reasons. However, the decision was split. Four judges decided in favor of upholding the conviction, and three decided against. And the people that the judges that oppose the decision basically said what we've been saying that maybe that's true and it does seem like it, but there's no actual evidence. Right. So, but he, yeah. So his hmm. conviction was st- stood, and as far as I know, he's still in prison. Okay. So I mean, that's interesting. This one's this one's rough. It's very rough, and they never found her body. Ugh, awful. That so, poor, poor mother. Once again, Merry Christmas. Yeah. This is a movie for children. <laughs> um, sorry, I should not sing. That's not what this podcast is for. <laughs> that would be the least popular podcast of all time. Well, that's that all was I have for that one. Very uplifting. You got one more for us? Yes, we're going to talk about deadly delivery, which will make you highly suspicious of all of the Christmas packages coming <laughs> to your house. If you want to watch this, you have to look it up on YouTube. Ooh, which you can do without Netflix, so that's good. Search for Forensophiles Deadly Delivery. Forensophiles has actually uploaded a bunch of episodes onto YouTube, Thanks, I discovered. Files. So, yeah, that's a way you could watch some Forensic Files if you do not feel like paying for Netflix, which I feel you. So, December, of course, because this is a Christmas episode, <laughs> 1989. Federal court judge Robert Vance and his wife Helen were preparing for what holiday? That's right, Christmas, when they received a package and it was, quote, a delivery he never expected. Yeah, because it was a motherfucking pipe bomb. Ooh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. So he, 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 he opened the package, and it was a pipe bomb. And he had never received any threats, so there was really no reason for him to be suspicious sure. of a package. And it was at his home. It wasn't at his office. or. And this was a much less suspicious time, right? This was quite a few yes, years ago. Yes, yes. So he was killed instantly. Miraculously, Helen suffered injuries, but she was able to get to a neighbor's house, despite the fact that nails penetrated her body. Oh, God. Yeah. So two days later, a security guard at an Atlanta courthouse notices a suspicious package. They put it through their x-ray machine, and they find that it, I don't understand this part, contained flashlight batteries. Aren't those just batteries? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you put special batteries in your flashlight? Because I just put, like... I don't. 
Double A batteries in mine. But they said that was the telltale sign of a pipe bomb. Flashlight batteries? Yes. Uh, so confused. I'm confused. Anyway, so well, as we know, making bombs is hard. That's true. All right. Snowball this understands. Guy was but... great at it, though. Okay. Yeah. Uh, experts dismantled the bomb. It was the same type of bomb that was used to kill Judge Vance, and they knew this because it had two unique characteristics that they had never seen in a bomb before. One was that the bomb in the inside of the box was spray painted black. So this what's the point of that? To cover up any fingerprints or other forensic evidence that might have been left in oh. the package or bomb, he covered it all with paint so that it would be harder to use. It also had square end caps to the pipe, which they said was used to delay explosion and increase force. I don't know why square end caps would do that, but let's just take their word for it that they do. And <laughs> sure. um, I guess that's not something they had seen before either. Okay. Sure. Great. So the package had no hair, no fibers, or fingerprints. It was also similar to a tear gas bomb that had previously been sent to the NAACP in Atlanta. The, that bomb came with a letter declaring war against the 11th Circuit Court. And at the time, they were like, why is this letter about the 11th Circuit Court, which yeah. is in the jurisdiction of that area but otherwise has no connection to the a why would you send that to the NAACP right weird but what they decided after the judge was killed and they found this bomb in a courthouse was that seemed to be a test so that bomb had been tear gas and he was seeing if it would could successfully go through the mail without going off oh okay and did so then he was like great now i'll send it to this judge sure test your Bombs first, I guess. Right. Um, so shortly after that, Robert Robinson, who was a civil rights lawyer in Savannah, found a package on his desk and opened it and immediately died. That bomb was ignited by pulling the string that was outside the package. So it wasn't opening the box necessarily. It was pulling the string that was like tied around it. And when you pulled that off, that like the ignition for the pipe bomb. Oh, God, this is horrible. I am already suspicious of my Christmas packages. And we're not <laughs> even halfway done. So he was killed instantly. The same day, Willie Dennis received an, an identical package. She was the president of the NAACP in Jacksonville, Florida. But she was late for a meeting, and she left without opening it. So she got home. The and only time someone's ever been happy to have to go to a meeting. <laughs> yeah, really. So she got home that night. She didn't go back to the office. And so, and she didn't open the package. And she gets a call from her friend that was like, "Oh, did you hear what happened to Robert Robertson? And it's so sad. He got this package and he died instantly. You haven't gotten any suspicious packages, have you?" And she was like, "Oh shit! There's wow. one sitting on my desk right now." So she called the police, and they, yeah, it was identical to the the previous bombs used. Fortunately, she was fine, and they were able to dismantle that bomb without anyone being hurt. That's so crazy. There were four letters in her package, which I don't understand. Like, if the bomb's going to go off. Why bother putting letters on it? If the bomb's going to go off, aren't the letters going to explode? Yeah, yeah, I think. I don't know. If it has enough force to kill someone, I wouldn't imagine a letter would survive. I mean, I guess the person's getting killed by a bunch of nails flying out. So maybe, I don't. I don't understand. Clearly, we know nothing about bombs. We know nothing. So there was four letters in that package. It confessed to all the previous crimes. 
Why would you send a confession letter with your bomb? I don't know. That makes no sense. All the letters and the labels had been typed with a typewriter that had a unique characteristic, which was that the number one had been replaced. So at some point, that key had broken, and they had put in a key, a different number one key, so it didn't match oh. the font or whatever you want to call it of the other keys sure. of that typewriter. This is a lesson in why you should not kill a judge. Uh, that's a crime <laughs> that's taken super seriously. <laughs> the, yes, it is a lesson in why you should, you should kill, not kill a judge. judge. The FBI examined one million documents to find something typed that had that same characteristic. Holy shit. One million documents. <laughs> they, I assume real people with real eyes were looking at every yes, single one of these. this is in the late 80s. That's insane. So they found one letter that also had this replaced number one key. And that was a letter that was about an obscure life insurance case and had been written by Robert Wayne O'Farrell in Enterprise, Alabama. O'Farrell was a junk dealer. <laughs> and the FBI showed up and searched his property and couldn't find the typewriter. And I'm sure Robert was like, what the hell is going on? Because you just imagine this like SWAT team like oh, yeah. swooping into your they like, came out in force. little junk shop. They probably where you're landed like, a helicopter. What? Yeah. His daughter was like, oh, yeah, he used to have a typewriter, but we sold it at, like, a garage sale or something, and I don't know who has it. And they were like, he didn't have a, a receipt of sale. I was at like, a garage sale? I was like, for a used typewriter, you think that's suspicious? Who gives receipts out yeah. of a garage sale? No. Or, like, he sold it as a junk shop or whatever, but it's like, it's a used typewriter. It's not a car or yeah. a gun. He no, probably he paid didn't. them to take it. Yeah. So, anyway, after... Looking at these documents and tracking down, thinking they had tracked down the typewriter, it ended up not leading anywhere. Forensic ap- uh, experts are like looking, uh, talking about this bomb. They're like annoyed that they can't crack this case. And like one expert's talking to another, and he's like, Oh, yeah, that reminds me of a similar bomb from years earlier, which was a woman who was accidentally wounded by a bomb that authorities believed was made by her husband. Uh, okay. Walter Leroy Moody. His last name was Moody, really? Yeah, I know. (laughs) I thought about that, too. Because, you know, same pretty Moody. So, and from that incident, Moody had been sentenced to six years. So, I don't think the wife ever, like, testified against him, but basically a bomb went off in her house. (laughs) She was wounded, and it was pretty clear that her husband had made a bomb, and it went off, and it wasn't supposed to. Okay. So he ended up serving six years and was pissed. So after getting out, he spent the next 10 years trying to get his records expunged. And he even wrote a book about his experience called Priority Mail. Oh, my God. He sounds like the worst. Yeah. He was also obsessed with the Julie Love case, which is a famous case in Atlanta where a white woman was murdered by black men. Oh, my God. Yep. This Here is we go. why he had been targeting the NAACP in his mind. That In his horrible, deformed, racist mind, that made sense. But that case was also tried by the 11th Circuit Court. Okay. So he's mad at all black people, I guess, and also this court. All right. In one letter, he swore that for every white woman raped by a black man, he would kill a judge, an attorney, in a leader within the NAACP. What the fuck? Yeah. So the FBI interviewed 6,000 people. 
Okay. Um, that were connected to him? Yeah. Or who did they, they didn't interview? really say. I'm more bringing it up as, again, don't kill a judge. <laughs> That's taken really seriously. And no one's, the FBI is not interviewing 6,000 people when I get murdered. Exactly. Like, in a way, I sort of wish that we could treat all victims similarly. But when you have this direct assault on the justice, uh, the system? justice system, yeah, it, it is going to be taken more seriously, for better or worse. But it, just the scope of this investigation is crazy to me. 6,000 people. Holy shit. Yeah. Moody's home was searched. They even lifted up the floorboards and vacuumed under them to look for gunpowder. But none was found. <laughs> they were, like, looking for little specks of gunpowder that might have, like, fallen into the cracks of the wood. Very thorough. Yes. Because clearly he had, like, cleaned up, but they didn't find anything. However, his wife, Susan Moody, eventually admitted that her husband was abusive. Big surprise. Yeah. He not also, surprised at all. On more than one occasion, had told her to buy pipe, tubing, raincoats, rubber gloves, shower caps... And black spray paint. She also once saw him shoplifting a box of nails, which I guess would be a way to not have that purchase traced back to you. Sure, I guess. You make your wife buy the stuff and then you shoplift your nails. So the idea was that he was masking any evidence by wearing a raincoat and a shower cap and wearing gloves, which is how he was like not getting any fingerprints or fibers and all this stuff. Also, it was Susan, it turned out it was Susan Moody who had purchased the typewriter. And that her fingerprint was on one of the letters because for some reason he made her go to like Kinko's or something and copy them, which I, for what? I have no idea why. So Susan got immunity and testified against him. And yeah. And this horrible racist murderer was actually sentenced to death and was killed by electrocution. Okay. So that's the end of Mr. Moody, who sounds like a horrible person. Yes. Yes, and was really, they were, like, really emphasizing what a genius he was and how great he was at making bombs. I mean, I guess. Yeah, but I'm not impressed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not as impressed as the FBI seemed to be at how good, like. I I guess, I mean, it sounded like he maybe innovated some new design in his bombs, but I guess. I guess the fact that he didn't just, like, literally copy something out of a book. They were like, whoa, this guy is some sort of bomb-making genius. I don't think a bomb, like a pipe bomb is that complex, is it? I guess I know nothing about bombs, so maybe it is. From my own expertise, I'm going to say making bombs is hard. And this guy was good at it. Sure. I, I guess that's he had some weird all we can say about racist him. conspiracy theories that he was taking out on people. Innocent people. Innocent people that all fell within the jurisdiction of the 11th Circuit Court, which is why it was in multiple states. Huh, well, what? Merry Christmas, everyone. What a bag of trash. Merry <laughs> Christmas. Enjoy opening those Christmas presents. Probably not pipe bombs, I'm going to say. But they probably aren't. They probably aren't pipe bombs. This guy got electrocuted. Yeah, so you're safe. So you're safe? Oh, guys, I'm sorry. This was a good <laughs> idea in my head. I don't know that it really worked. We still love you. Oh, thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah, we really do appreciate all of our awesome reviewers. You guys have been so funny and supportive, so we really appreciate it. This is our gift to you. Okay, I'm going <laughs> to... In the spirit of Jazz Loon, I'm going to play something to, to lighten... This is a palate cleanser. I'm going to play something oh. for Samantha to kind of lighten the mood. 
Is it more Jasloon? I wish it was more Jasloon, but no. Okay, well, let's see. Looking at the screen, and this says, We wish you a Merry Christmas goat edition. Is this screaming goats <laughs> made to sound like we wish you a Merry Christmas? <laughs> that sounds. They sound like they're they're ill. I loved a screaming goat video in, in my day. Oh, holy night. <laughs> That's a great palate cleanser. You guys, we'll put some links to some goat Christmas songs. My friend Jen sent that to me, and I really appreciate that she knew that I would want to listen to Christmas carols as screamed by goats. <laughs> And I don't know who mixed those together, but God bless them. God bless us, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> They're a hero. Yeah. What is your sure. favorite Christmas movie, Samantha? My favorite Christmas movie is probably A Nightmare Before Christmas, which I'm not even sure if that counts, but it's, it's the only Christmas movie I would watch as a child. Not even going to lie. <laughs> it's the only movie I would watch at Christmas time. My sister always wanted to watch like the Peanuts Christmas special or whatever, oh, and I'm just like, yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> um, that movie is so smart because it really covers Halloween to Christmas. It covers like a quarter of the year. I would only watch that at Christmas time. And also we would go on vacations for a week with my cousins in northern Minnesota. We would stay at like a cabin or whatever. And that's all we would watch the entire week was A Nightmare Before Christmas. I don't know why. That's but amazing. we fucking loved it. So I have very fond memories of that one. I'm not a big Christmas movie person. We watched. Yeah, um, me neither. Miracle on 13th Street? Is that a... Am, that, I get, am I getting that name right? We I used think to watch it's 34th Street. 34th Street. What? 13th Street, whatever. A different miracle happened on 13th <laughs> Street. It's less talked about. Um, we watched that one a lot, too, but I don't know if that's my favorite. It's just one that we watched for some reason. What about you? Well, I was going to say that one year as a kid, my dad suggested that we have a Nightmare Before Christmas-themed Christmas. That's amazing. Um, Which I should bring up that... This was in Wheaton, Illinois, which is a very religious <laughs> and conservative place. So we didn't really have a lot outside, but we had put out this, like, giant spider web thing on our porch, like, made of rope. And so we just covered that in, like, Christmas lights. I don't know that anyone now would even, like, think anything of it. But then inside, our Christmas tree was covered in, like, Halloween-y stuff. And also, um, <laughs> along the staircase, we made little nooses and we hung all of our Beanie Babies. <laughs> <laughs> Which is that in Nightmare Before Christmas? No, but, I missed that part of the movie. Yeah, but. It, it just seemed like appropriate. People honestly came to like complete strangers came to our house to yell at my mother and try to save her soul. I'm not kidding. Like tried to force their way into like she would open the door. They would like put their foot in, you know, and then oh, like oh yeah, the salesman tactic. Yeah, and then start yelling at her about Jesus. And then she was sort of like, "Why are you looking through the windows into my house?" Yeah, a good question. Because the only thing that's outside is this, like, one spider web thing. But anyway, that 
the beanie babies and the nooses. That's how my family celebrates Christmas. <laughs> I'm actually a big fan of Muppet Christmas Carol. Okay, yep. Because Michael Caine is such a fucking pro, and no one will convince <laughs> me otherwise. There are scenes in that movie where it's literally no humans. It's just him and puppets, and he's giving, like, a full-on performance. He <laughs> cries in front of a Muppet at some point. <laughs> you will never convince me that does not deserve an Oscar. It blows me away every time. I'm like, it can't be as good as I always say it is. And then I watch it again, and I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> this performance is not phoned in. Like, this is really serious. <laughs> That's true. I mean, you have a good point. And I really like the part where they're going through the market and, like, the little vegetable puppets are singing. I don't know. It's just adorable to me. I love it. Plus, Gremlins is great. Yes. Gremlins, I'm really happy we watched that last night. We also watched the documentary Tickled on HBO. Sure, because we know how to have a good time. That was weird. (laughs) If you want to learn about competitive endurance tickling leagues. That's not pornographic in any way. No. It has nothing to do with sex. No. Or masturbating or weird old guys <laughs> or, who get off on watching young men tickle each other. No. Uh, and blackmail. It has nothing to do with that. Um, yeah. It's, it was really good. I it enjoyed was good. it. If you want to, if you want to know this is a weird world where stuff is happening that you don't know about. <laughs> Watch. There you go. Watch that documentary. That's the evidence of it. We also decided that we wouldn't mind being endurance ticklers and getting paid for it. I mean, I want a lot of money. Super, but super bad. No, I don't really like being tickled, but I would do it for thousands for of thousands dollars. Of dollars and cars and shit. Yeah, I'll do it. Whatever. I also decided I'd be okay being a foot fetish model. <laughs> that was a weird realization <laughs> so in my life. So, anybody is interested in paying for pictures of Samantha's feet, get in touch. Or perhaps like, it's you, podcast at gmail.com. All I'm saying is, if someone wants to rub my feet and film it and then give me money, sure. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. It's a lot of money, but yeah. It would have to be a lot of money. Sure. But I would do well, it. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Listen. Listen. That sounds, that sounds great. Um, we have one more thing we want to do, which is give each other Christmas <laughs> gifts you can't see. Yes. <laughs> which like I'm, every quality podcast. Uh, hell yeah. All right, Samantha. Am I going first? Here's oh, your I'm present. So so I'm, all they're going to hear is a lot of rustling. Yeah. This segment. This is so cute. Liz even wrapped it in like a skull bag. <laughs> Not just because that's what I happen to have around, obviously. <laughs> it is not a pipe bomb. I'm going to say that right now so Samantha is not. Ooh. Mystery solver. It's a patch that glows in the dark. Yes. I have one as well. This is amazing. I got this off Etsy. I love this so much. It's a little mystery solver patch to identify yourself as a mystery solver. And don't worry, it glows in the dark. So oh, when you... Well, when you're out solving mysteries. Yeah, when you solve mysteries <laughs> in the evening, people you, will still know mystery solver. This is a notebook that says unsolved <laughs> mysteries on it. It has, a, <laughs> it has a silhouette of Robert Stack. I don't know how this person didn't get sued. I don't know either. Uh, but this is on, I think, Teespring. And for some reason, oh. I didn't order myself one, which was dumb. This is amazing. Oh, my God. <laughs> my new bullet journal for 2018 <laughs> has arrived. <laughs> and then this bag. A blood splatter makeup item. <laughs> Nothing From says- Bitter Lace Beauty. Is this a highlighter? This is a blood splatter Ooh. highlighter. Oh Nothing says Samantha to me more. I should have taken a picture before I swatched it. Oh, well. Because I kind of messed up the blood splatter. <laughs> this is how you know your friendship is great. <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't want blood splatter highlighter? I mean. Oh, my God. It's really nice, too. It's kind of got a golden hue. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. So I have a gift for you. 
Oh my goodness. And I have a gift for Lenny Briscoe. Oh my goodness. Aww. <laughs> here's yours. And here's Lenny's. Okay. I don't know that Lenny's going to like it very much, but whatever. Well, that's his problem. <laughs> Is it a pipe bomb? It's not a pipe bomb. Oh, thank goodness. It's, it's too thin to be a pipe bomb. Yeah, that's true. Oh. <laughs> okay, my first item here. And so I have a framed picture of a UFO. It says, get in, loser. Which, yes. I thought that'd be great for your Roswell-themed bathroom. Thank you. It will be. I also get some animal face masks, which is very exciting, including polar bear and moose. They're Christmas-themed. I, I can only assume they look like... I didn't know that moose existed. They're Korean, and it has a face of a moose on it, I assume. And then I have some pins from... Cat Mint Studios. They're little cats that are also witches. Oh my goodness. <laughs> They're so cute. I love them. Lenny Briscoe's present. Which of course is in a little bag with Snoopy on it because it's for a dog. Of course. Of course. That makes sense. Oh my god. <laughs> this is a bandana that says paw in order. <laughs> I've never loved anything more. And then the little Scales of Justice has a bone and a fish. Oh, The name of the Etsy shop is in there, too. You'll, we'll, put a, we'll put all of this on Instagram yeah. or in the show notes, because, yeah, this Etsy shop was really nice. Oh they sent God. a really nice note. Pawn order. Oh, my goodness. Lenny, come here. <laughs> <laughs> Look what you're wearing forever. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Samantha. Well, thank you. And thank you, listeners. We really yes. appreciate you listening to our I little podcast. hope you all have a happy holidays. We're going to take one week off. Yes. Next week we'll be gone, but then we'll be back in January for... So we'll look forward to you in the new year. Yes. 2018. What will it bring? What mysteries will we solve? So rate and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Perhaps it's you. And have a great holiday and yeah. solve some mysteries. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.